Welcome to the first interview episode of season two. I am beyond grateful and honored that when I reached out to the co-hosts of the podcast, Dear White Women, Sarah and me, Sasha, were so excited about joining me in today's conversation. Before we dive in, let me tell you a little bit more about them and the fact that they just published their book, also called Dear White Women. I ordered an advanced copy. It's beautifully designed, and you'll hear a lot about the book in today's interview. So Masasha Suzuki Graham is a graduate of Harvard College and Columbia Law School, and she's been a practicing litigator for over 15 years. Both of these women are extremely passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and specifically with Masasha in the legal profession as well as her own communities. She's a facilitator, writer, and speaker regarding issues about racial justice and children, because you'll hear her speak about how she's married to her Black husband, she has children who are made of different ethnicities, and then how to help navigate and have those honest and often imperfect conversations. She lives in the Bay Area with her family and, as she calls it, a largely indifferent cat. Now, Sarah Blanchard helps build community and connection through conscious conversations as a facilitator, TEDx speaker, writer, and consultant. So she also graduated from Harvard, and you'll hear how the two women connected when they were in college. And then she went to work at Goldman Sachs, and she's pursued science and techniques of well-being as a certified life coach, author of two books. So they're both the co-author of Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, and then for Sarah, also Flex Mom. And this social justice podcast that they have is, you know, you'll hear me (laughs) say to them, I don't know how you guys have the time to do all of this research and then have these incredibly thoughtful conversations with their guests, with each other. She's married to a white Canadian man and she has two white presenting girls. She really encourages them to be compassionate and thoughtful advocates for whatever it is that they're passionate about. They live in Denver, Colorado, and they have an incredibly lovable dog, is what they say. So in today's conversation, we'll dive deep into personal stories, into their professional work, and how we can work together as a community, whatever culture, ethnicity, you know, however you identify in the world, however you present, to not avoid these awkward conversations and instead come from our lived experience. How can we become closer to the people who are in our network? How can we help heal, you know, stories from our families of origin? How do we move forward and help our children navigate the world as they're living and growing into it? I hope that you get a lot out of today's conversation. Please do go check out their podcast. They've interviewed everyone from Dr. Shafali Tsabari to, you know, incredible social justice advocates. They actually recommended a book during this podcast episode, which I started listening to called Beautiful Country, and it's been lovely so far. Without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast. I'm your host, Judy Tsui, and together we'll explore mental and emotional health for Asian Americans and beyond, all by breaking through taboo topics. Life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Let's make your story beautiful today. Welcome back to the Fuck Saving Face podcast. I'm very excited because I have two incredible women here today, Sarah and Sasha, and they're the co-hosts of the Dear White Women podcast. When I first started listening to the podcast, I was like, how do they have the time to do all this historical research? (laughs) All this like contemporary knowledge, they're both mothers, you know, like the whole shebang. 
But I'm going to turn it over to you both because I also just want you to put in your own words, like, you know, how you came about creating this idea and how you got to where you are now, because I want more people to listen to this since season two of this podcast is more about moving towards bridging those cultural divides and really starting to bring in other voices that can complement, not just highlighting AAPI voices, but anybody else who's just doing work to kind of create the world that we want to live in and that we want our children to live in. So I will turn it over to either one of you, whoever wants to chime in first to get the conversation started. I love that you said it's about bridging the gaps because I feel like as a biracial woman, you know, I'm the daughter of a really tall, blonde hair, blue eyed, white, waspy New Englander and (laughs) a Japanese immigrant mother. And it was, I feel like I grew up in my DNA having to bridge cultures Mm. and bridge conversations and different sides of things. And so You know, my background really briefly, I was in finance living in Tokyo and in Hong Kong for a while. And then my dad, who I loved, uh, very, very dearly passed away pretty suddenly. And it sort of shook Mm -hmm. me out of the golden handcuffs and into the stuff I loved, which is life coaching and positive psych. And how do we help humans thrive? Which is why I'm Mm -hmm. super psyched to be here (laughs) in this conversation. But Misasha and I met over 20, what is it over? Just about 25 years ago. Wow. And we were walking out of a racial identity conversation. So it's Mm -hmm. funny that here we are years and decades later, two and a half years into our own show and platform and conversations around racial and social justice. I am married to a white Canadian guy and have white presenting daughters just Mm. for the context of this conversation. (laughs) But in terms of how we showed up here, you know, how we, I, for, you know, bridge the gap between life coaching and and wellness and justice. I think I really want to turn it over to me, Sasha, because Mm. she's incredible and has the personal side of the story. Oh, right back at you. <laughs> so I'm Misasha, the second half of the Dear White Women podcast duo. I'm also biracial, the daughter of a Japanese immigrant father and a white mother. And, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles and split a lot of my time with Tokyo. So to me, it was very natural that everyone just had another country, you know, that they were dealing with, right? Like we were very Japanese in a lot of ways at home. And then, you know, I would go to school or do ballet or be in completely American circles. So like Sarah said, it was very natural for me very early on to look at identity and how I showed up and how people saw me and how I saw myself. And, you know, along with all the other questions that you ask yourself as you're growing up and like, especially as a teenage girl, you ask yourself all the questions, right? But then I ended up years later after college where Sarah and I met doing a stint in finance and then going into law. So my background is as a litigator, specifically intellectual property litigator, but it's really caused me to look at the through lines, right? Or like, look at the history and the precedent, like how do we get from point A to point B and ask those questions along the way. So I think that's what I love particularly about what we do. Personally, I am married to a Black man. I have two boys who are Black, Japanese, and white, who the world sees as Black. And so, you know, when Sarah and I met walking out of that discussion 25 years ago, I don't think we ever thought we would end up here. But that discussion was about being biracial in particular. And, you know, identity has been a big part of who we are and how we talk about things. And as we got older, you know, we got married, we had kids, like those conversations shifted along the way. And I think you, when you, in particular, when you become a parent, you think 
you know, what do I want for my kids? What are my hopes? What are my dreams? Um, but you also have your fears, right? You have those moments that are really scary as parents. And one of mine was, you know, that my boys would walk out of our house one day and not come back simply based on the color of their skin, right? Because I was pregnant with my oldest son when Trayvon Martin was murdered mm. and, you know, he was 17 and I was um, holding my second son when Tamir Rice was murdered and he was 12. And so I think that raising boys with that as a, as a very current backdrop brings that fear to life. And it's kind of a debilitating fear because you want to protect your kids as a parent and you cannot protect them from this. So Sarah and I started to, we would have these conversations and we realized like these conversations were not happening in a lot of the circles that we were moving in, which were largely white because being biracial, we have had the privilege of sort of floating through various spaces because people always try and, you know, pin you into, are you white? Are you Asian? And when you're both, you can kind of be both simultaneously. And so we thought like, what if we could change those conversations, right? What if we don't just have to exist within that status quo, but what if we push the narrative some, what if we expand that narrative to include people whose stories are not what has been largely taught in schools? What is the dominant narrative in the United States? And wouldn't we all be better off? Couldn't we protect all of our kids better? And so I think that was really the questions that led us to create this podcast and we're still trying to answer those questions and ask them in different ways, you know, two and a half years later. You've had incredible guests on your podcast. So since you began the podcast, you know, what are some of the kind of lessons and insights that you've gleaned along the way? Has there been a common narrative or have you seen the impact that you're making? I'm going to tease like the book that we'll talk about too, <laughs> <laughs> that you both published a book recently. But yeah, is there something that you've gleaned along the way that you feel like has really struck a chord with people or you've seen as an impact in real life? Yes. I mean, I think <laughs> I, I love the, in terms of the impact, right? I think when, anytime we talk about making change, you've got the internal work, like the bottom up change that we're all making in our own spheres of influence. And then you have the top down structural, like do we have all the support systems and things out there in the world, in our society to make those changes? And I think we largely lean into the bottom up, like what are the things that each one of us can do and look inwards at? And so the comments we get back from listeners and mm -hmm. followers has been incredibly uh, meaningful. We've seen people advocate for policy change because of something mm -hmm. they learned on our show. We've seen people bring our content to school districts and, and help teach things. And so that's incredibly meaningful. But I think the biggest trend that we have seen is that there seems to be this divide. I'm curious if you recognize this in any of the conversations you have too, but between people who aren't willing to acknowledge the struggles we all have as humans, right? And, and want to pursue money and power and blindly go for that and buy into the systems as they exist. And then the people who are leaning into wellness and introspection and questioning the status quo and figuring out what we need for each of us as humans to thrive and what are the things we can do to support our communities. And so I think as we've gone, we've been really fortunate to have so many incredible guests who lean into that second way of thinking and looking at the world. And yet we always, in any of these like works that are contentious, right? I mean, our show is called Dear White Women. We're not really shying away <laughs> exactly. from the topic, just like your show, right? Like <laughs> you're not messing around, but it is very heart-led. 
And so, but, but because of the name, we definitely get people who are not willing to engage or who, who, who that scares and are recoiling at just the mere mention of the name or naming what the problems might be. And so it's great to, to have that pushback because I think it reinforces for us that the people that we attract, that the conversations we have mirror the way that we hope to offer this conversation, which is in a compassionate, welcoming empowering way where we can all make a difference in our own spheres of influence. We have to just be continuously intentional with how we live our life. Yeah. I think that, you know, when I was a yoga teacher, one of the things that we learned was you have to meet people where they are. And instead of getting angry about it or upset, like, okay, so here's how you're presenting, you know, how can I show up with all of my truths and honesties and, and all of that. And in the interview with the public policy expert who I just spoke with, at the very end of the show, when I asked him that question that I ask every guest, like, what would you say fuck saving face about? He's like, I think it's time to acknowledge that you are not white. Like so many people have continued to have that illusion that like, if I just do it perfect enough, then I will get there somehow. And even just him putting that into words, like it was great because, you know, I feel like over the last few years, that's been my journey of realizing like, oh shit, I'm not white. <laughs> like, and I am, you know, in my early forties. So it's been that long for me to come to that realization. And for me, who's someone who's done all the introspective, you know, meditations and self-healing and all of that kind of stuff. So I think that this journey that, and the conversations that you're having is a great challenge. And I think you also, you alluded to the fact of a lot of people don't have these conversations. It's too scary. It's too awkward. And one of my friends who is a white woman who grew up in New York, she asked me the other day when all of the Asian hate crimes were ramping up and stuff. She's like, how are you doing? And I was just kind of telling her my feedback. And she's like, and I said, I think you're the only person who's really asked me that like forthright, just like, how are you doing about this? And she's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like, aren't all of your friends white? I mean, you live in North County, San Diego. I'm like, yeah. And she's like, so none of the other friends have asked you. I'm like, well, I mean, like, you know, I don't think we're taught to how to have the words to have uncomfortable conversations, just even like in your own personal relationships. How often are you taught? Like if I am angry or if I'm upset, here are tools and tactics and words I can use to have a conversation with someone else so that they will hear me or I can ask in a non-offensive way, potentially, so that they won't be defensive. Like these are, you know, social skills. So I think when you're talking about the ground up, that's such a great way to look at it. And I'm curious because both of you are biracial and then you're creating multiracial family dynamics. Is this something that you talk about in your families as well? All the time. <laughs> I think, I think it's kind of, I mean, my husband doesn't know this and I don't think he'll listen to this show, but I use him as my example for what white men might think all the time. Like, and it's terrible because I mean, he's also Canadian. So I know he didn't grow up in the system, but he shows up in this world as a white heterosexual male. Mm -hmm. And so I love bouncing ideas around with him all the time. But, and then in terms of raising the kids in, in ways of being more sort of engaging in critical thinking and understand the basic history, absolutely all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say starting from my very first, you know, days of dating my husband, like race has always been a topic of discussion. And, you know, to your earlier point about we are not white. You know, he has said to me, yeah, Misasha, like I, it doesn't matter how many white people I work with, how many white people I hang around with. Like in the end, I'm still black. Like mm -hmm. I am still black. I can do all the things and I will still be black. And fundamentally that is my truth. And so it's like, yeah, no, you, you were right. And I think that 
raising boys who are Black, Japanese, and white, you know, I want them to be proud of who they are and how they show up. And so it is a constant conversation sometimes. And I mess up a lot. I should be, I should start there. I mess up a lot when we have these conversations because I know like sometimes the entry and Sarah and I've heard this recently, you know, where people are like, I'm not sure what to say to this person, you know, to your point about people not asking, right, about the anti-Asian hate crimes and how you were doing. People are like, I don't know what to say. But I, I think that it's tough. It's messy. But just recognizing humanity, you know, in others and checking in to see if someone's okay. Like, it, yeah. it, you know, and if you mess up, it's fine. You know, it, it, we, we will mess up. We will, we will. And for me, like super type A, <laughs> like trained very early on to try and be perfect, right? Like messing up is really, really hard for me to do. And it's taken a long time and I'm still not very good at owning some of it, but you know, it's something we need to do so we can get into these conversations. When you said that about people asking, you know, I had shared a story because I was asked by one guy, a white guy who I've done racial justice work, how I was doing after the Atlanta shootings too. And it was the moment that like brought my two identities crashing Mm. together. And that was when Mm. I switched my language from I'm half Japanese, half white to I am biracial. Like I am fully white and I am fully Asian. Like I'm able to exist in those worlds because I understand the, I don't only partially know my mom's culture. Like I speak the language, I know the Mm. food, like, right. I've been in it. And so, but when I shared that story in a white book club recently, like people were like, I would, was it, didn't, wasn't that offensive that they asked you how you were doing? Like they would have wanted to, they're not, well, a lot of white people aren't asked about their Scottish heritage or their, like, they're not asked. And so they were like, I, I wouldn't have wanted to expose my heritage where, whereas whether it's because we look different or whether it's because we're more recent immigrants compared to white people who may have emigrated to this country like a century ago, that seems like an uncomfortable conversation. And one of the people in the group said, I asked, but my friend said like you, oh, I don't really consider myself Asian. I'm like, I really feel like I'm more white. Like it was a very interesting dynamic. So she's like, did I mess up? Should I have not asked? And so I wonder about, you know, how well we need to know people before we ask them and connect with them on a humanity level, right? Like it would be kind of weird if someone you totally didn't know very well, but was a colleague maybe sort of asked, but I think it's, it speaks to the messiness of it and the many interpretations of it. But I know from my experience being asked it, it certainly made a difference. Like someone saw me. Yes. And I think Mm -hmm. that being seen and being heard, that's definitely become a theme that's very present in like my personal life right now. And how do you explain to somebody else the ways in which you want to be seen and heard if you haven't had the luxury of being asked that before, or you've tried your life to not do that and actually do the opposite of that. And I think, Sasha, your ability to say that it's going to be messy. I feel like sometimes people just need to hear that out loud, like just to give permission to like, it's okay if you're sad right now, or it's okay if this is going to be like this, like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me that I'm going through this or that I'm going to make mistakes. I mean, like we were raised in Asian cultures that like, no, you do not make mistakes, especially not publicly and especially not to offend somebody else. Like that is a huge faux pas. So I'm curious to, you know, when you said that you make mistakes and you have these, I think sometimes people also need to hear what the actual questions are that you're asking or, or what the sentence stems are. So what are some of the conversations that you've had with your husband and your boys? That's, you know, that if I were a fly on the wall, what are some of the questions? Well, so first of all, we use a tool in our house. We notice a lot of stuff, right? We notice Like I noticed that we've watched a lot of, you know, like NBA, right. But we don't watch the WNBA. 
at home? Like, why is that? Right. Like it's more sort of question oriented, but, but there's a lot of times um, I make mistakes when I, I don't know the answer. Right. And I think that's when a lot of times people, we as humans want to know the answer. Right. And I think we grew up where you are expected to know the answer. And if you don't know the answer, there's something wrong. And I think a lot of the questions around race and history or like how we got, you know, from point A to point B, I don't know. Right. And, and a lot of it, we weren't taught in schools. And so a lot of it is this discovery journey that we go on, you know, that we're trying to educate ourselves, but kids will ask questions, you know, and, and they will ask like my older son after George Floyd was murdered, he, you know, asked this I told him that this black entertainer had died. It was later on, several months later. And he's like, oh, was he killed by a white person? Because don't white people kill black people. And I was like, okay, like I am not prepared to have this conversation in the way (laughs) that I think is not going to traumatize my kid, but clearly he's thinking about this and this is a concern of his. So how do I honor this? And, you know, I, I was like, yes, sometimes that is true. And that, you know, has to do with a lot of things, including racism. But, you know, and to really answer your question, I need to go look up some stuff and let's go look at it together, right? Because we have a lot of books and we look at books as a tool. But it is, those are really tough questions. Or, you know, when the anti-Asian hate crimes were really bad and, and prevalent. And my dad lives in Los Angeles and I was really concerned for him. Right. Cause my dad will go out to the supermarket, you know, in largely white areas, just like, and he's, you know, kind of a tall guy, but I, I was just, I was really concerned for him. And I never thought, you know, I'd be in the position as I'm sure we all felt right to be that afraid for our parents. And I was telling, cause my older son was like, why are you, you know, upset or something? I was like, I'm really worried about grandpa. And then he was like, oh, cause we were talking about it a little bit. And he's like, oh, are you going to be okay? Are you going to be safe? And you know, those are those moments where I'm just like, oh no, like what, what do I say? And I can't give a quick answer. It's not a quick answer thing. And I think sometimes we want the quick answer. We want, you know, to check off the box and like done with that conversation, but it's not right. It's, it's, it's all the stuff we didn't learn all the stuff that we're not prepared for in the moment. And sometimes we do have to slow down and take those moments and say like, you know, this is a really great question. Thank you for asking me. And I don't want you to be concerned about me, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I don't know. It's life comes at you fast, right? It comes yes. at you really fast. Parenting. And so <laughs> parenting in particular comes at you super fast. Right. And, you know, and, but I, I think that we can't throw those moments away. You know, there's so much growth that happens for me too, in those moments, as well as my kids. That's incredible. And as you were talking, I started reflecting upon, you know, I've never asked my parents, what has your experience with racism been like? Like I saw it a little bit when I was growing up of different people making comments like Ching Chong, like whatever, and all that kind of stuff. But I imagine that their experience was much more intense because they also didn't have the language, you know, they're trying to like figure it out. And so I think, part of this podcast is to have these conversations. So hopefully, ideally, we can invoke more empathy and compassion for even the hardest relationships in our lives and to just see it from a new lens or a new angle. I would love, well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing all of that because I don't know. I don't know if any parent ever feels like they've given an adequate answer to anything. I sit there and I'm like, oh God. I could have probably uh, like, I'm going to, I'm going to just throw like a reality <laughs> check. My kid, like single digit age child asked me the other day, do you masturbate? And I'm like, 
thought we're done with this conversation. <laughs> like I had nothing, right? Like I was prepared for the sex talk, but I'm like, what? So oh life comes at you fast, <laughs> comes at you very fast. Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. Yeah. And you know, one of the great lessons that I've especially learned over the last like year or two is just, it's the coming back together. That's the opportunity to like strengthen. So it doesn't have to be perfect in that moment. You can have grace for yourself and then, you know, revisit the conversation. And, and also recently people have been saying like nothing's set in stone, you know, things can change, things can evolve. We're bringing whatever consciousness we have to this moment and tomorrow or a year from now, we'll think probably very differently. I would love to hear about your book. Tell us about it. <laughs> uh, Misasha, you can tell, I'm just so freaking excited about this book. It looks pretty. It's so pretty. It smells <laughs> like a book. Um, and it really is what I like to call an anti-racism 101, right? Like it level sets for people, all the stuff that we weren't necessarily taught in school, mm -hmm. but it is breaking down each chapter, which we have designated as sort of pain points, things that we commonly hear about race and racism in general society. But like we, we bring in the empathy, we share stories in each chapter. We have the history and laws and reality of how we got to where we are. And then again, in each chapter, uh, we have an action point. Like it really helps answer the question, okay, now that I know this, what do I do? And so we come at it from three different sections. We have the being white in America, being black in America and being a non-black person of color in America mm. as well. And so it's a, we like to say it's a level setting guide that I think basically, unless you've been involved in these conversations for a long time, there is nuggets of information and action things that we can all do differently and better all the time. Cause this is a constant work in progress. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. I it's, think the book, yeah. um, Oh, sorry. No, um, no. I was going to just say like, even when you described it, I was like, how did she compile? How did they both compile all of that information into a little book? Like the three sections in and of themselves could be like huge tomes, like encyclopedia oh, yeah. level. <laughs> yeah. But go ahead. What are you going to say, Musasha? You know, I think we've seen a lot of books that are based in theory, right? And I think a lot of the discussions around race and racism are theoretical in some ways or deal with overarching theories. And like, look, I majored in like completely theoretical major. So like, I love just the possibility of something, right? But that said, like, I think that that is paralyzing for people because you hear the possibilities and you might've read a lot of the books that came out, which are great books and that talk about the theory behind why we are here. But then the problem is you put those books down and you think like, okay, I know all these things now, but I don't know how to take this concept and put it into my daily life. And so that is what we were really trying to do with this book. Cause I, I think that people ask, what do I do about something? And then if there isn't something that's easily actionable, then it, it gets, you know, sort of pushed the side because especially if you're white in this country, it, it doesn't have to be top of mind, right? It is not your daily survival is not sort of based on, on this, but I, I think that we need everyone in this conversation. We need everyone in this work. It really is all of our collective work, right? To make this better for our kids at the very least. So I think that is our why as to why we wrote this book and why we specifically structured it as practically as we did. And, and I'll also add, yes, it's called Dear White Women, but Asian <laughs> people are allowed to read it too. Like it really, we were really reaching out to that target audience of people who have largely been able to 
avoid the conversation, check out of the conversation, but it really is written in an approachable, easy to read, like pick up, put down kind of format for anybody who is interested in the conversation. And I think storytelling, I mean, like science has even demonstrated that I love that you infuse that as a storyteller, you know, as a writer, those are my personal passions, but as I've, you know, had more time to dive into it a more deeply, I've learned how our brain actually rewires when we hear stories and that when we hear other people's stories, there's a level of us standing in their shoes and like projecting what would that feel like? What would that be like? Which I think is another reason why storytelling is so impactful, why it's been passed through millennia as ways to learn the lessons to help us navigate our lives is our brain really actively rewires to better understand that. So I love that you included that personal component because I think that so often when you have that personal experience or that conversation or the whatever it is, when it's on a more personal level, it just sits more deeply in your heart and in your future lived experience. So I love that you did that. I'm curious too, you know, both of you are biracial. I have a biracial daughter. When you say that you recently started embracing wholeheartedly each identity, I don't know if I've asked this on the show yet to anybody else who's been biracial, but you know, I think what would be your like, you have many, I'm sure, but golden nugget of wisdom (laughs) that you would kind of like share and impart for somebody else navigating that as well, because that won't be my lived experience with my daughter. So I, I won't know firsthand what that's like for her. I mean, I think the beauty of being biracial for me has been that I've never fit in and therefore I am who I am. Like it forced me to acknowledge my independent identity way early. And so I was always quirky. Misasha can tell you about my horrific fashion sense showing up at college (laughs) and like, but I just did my own thing for as long as I could until basically society smacked me down for periods of time. And I like bought into the Kool-Aid for a while, but really for me, because I was always you know, going to Saturday school for Japanese and living summers in Japan and, and doing all these things that it turns out other white kids in my community weren't doing, but yet also fitting in with the white kids, I, I sort of just was well-liked for being a, my own self. Mm. And so I think that gave me voice early on. And so I leaned into that a lot. I think for me, it was really, people will try and put you right in a box. And so for me, it was really important from a very early age to be able to define who I was. And so I think this is kind of along the lines of what Sarah was saying too. Like I I recognized that there were spaces that I would go into that were predominantly Asian where people would look at me and be like, why are you here? But then I would bring my lunch to school and, you know, my dad would have gone to little Tokyo and have gotten something that I thought was awesome. And my white classmates would be like, what the hell is that? You know? And so there were definite times where I was like, I don't fit in anywhere, but at the same time, people were like, oh, you're white or, and you know, this also, my name is made up. Right. And my parents really, you know, there's kanji Japanese characters for my name. Like the, my grandmother and the fortune teller in Japan picked these characters out, but my parents created this name. Cause they were like, oh, this is perfect. Like all Americans will think it's American. All Japanese will think it's Japanese because it's got this kanji. So no, that was a giant fail on their part. All (laughs) Japanese thought it's like some American name. All Americans think I'm Russian or Eastern European because they're like, oh, I can kind of see it. I'm like, not at all. Yes, not at all. (laughs) Um, But, you know, and so so I just ended up with one of those names where you can't find it on any keychain at like any rest stop (laughs) anywhere. Right. There's no personalized things ever. But starting from that, right, from the very first moment where people will mispronounce your name or they'll call you what you want to, you, you learn to find your voice about who you are. 
And so I think that now in retrospect, although I hated it for the first 18 years of my life, they, my parents gave me this gift with my name because it forced me, right, to advocate for myself. Mm, that's amazing. Well, I could talk to you both for forever because <laughs> I love everything that you're doing. I would love to close the interview the same way that I do with all the other guests and just ask you along the lines of this idea of fuck saving face and really empowering mental and emotional health for all of us on this planet. <laughs> what would you like to say and share and highlight to potentially reframe or just invite people to contemplate or reflect upon or whatever it is that's on your heart? Ooh, that and an addendum. So like final question, part 1A, <laughs> is there something that people haven't asked you that you would really like to be asked or just like, you know, share about somewhat similar, <laughs> somewhat different? I will offer my vulnerability, which is that I struggle with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason that I, you know, after my dad died, when I was 26, I went through a depression you know, situationally or whatever, but part of my interest in human psychology and life coaching and all of this stuff is because I'm selfish. I want mm. to know what does it take for us to all build a more resilient life? What does it take to help people thrive? Because I need to put all these pillars of support in my own life mm. to maintain equilibrium. And I think for the longest time, especially being type A, I would compare myself to my friends who maybe on this call who could get like four <laughs> hours of sleep and like <laughs> do all the things. Cause I, I'm so fortunate to have brilliant, incredibly driven people in my life who do really cool stuff. And I always felt like I had to like push it and I wasn't ever good enough because mm -hmm. I needed my eight hours of sleep or that I was having an off day or that I feel things really emotionally. Mm -hmm. You know, I process things in this way. It is a gift. I know now after all the work that I've done that it is a gift, but I guess I want to just say, fuck it to all of these comparisons, right? Mm -hmm. Like I thrive when I have boundaries, when I know that I am worth it, I am enough and that I can get the sleep and I can get a lot of shit done in the hours that I'm awake. And so coming to that point took a long time. And I want to help people short circuit that by just being like, if you know what you need, claim mm. it, you are worth it. Because mm. for so long, we're told it's external metrics of success that define who we are. And that's mm -hmm. not true. Mm. I love that. That's exactly what I say all the time. I mean, one of, I feel like it should be my new tagline is that hurt people hurt people. So like, let's help ourselves heal because, <laughs> you know, having been on the receiving end of that, I mean, you know, sharing vulnerably just a few weeks back, I think something happened with my ex-husband that then my friend, you know, said a comment, which was like, you don't deserve this shit. And that one comment unleashed a whole waterfall of understanding of, wow, Throughout my entire life, I've been experiencing things that I haven't, you know, quote unquote, deserved for just being who I was because I was on the receiving end of other hurt people who didn't know how to manage their emotions or whatever it was. And I think for a long time, I just interpreted in order to survive my young mind in order to survive just was like, there must be something wrong with me. If I can try harder and do better, I'll get out of this. I'll do, you know, and so I think that that's what was a huge part of leading to my eating disorder and trying to control things and manage and all of that kind of stuff. But I don't know, like intellectually, you can understand things for a very long time. And then all of a sudden your emotions or your inner child or whatever catches up with you. And then 
I feel like it was that weekend that all of it just kind of came together and was like, oh my God, there is some grieving work that I have not done for, you know, the injustice that I've experienced or, you know, how resilient I've been. And so I just spent the weekend, I'm not a crier, but I just like, was like crying and crying and crying. And then also listening to Mumford and Sons on repeat, like, <laughs> just like how much more emo could I get? <laughs> Just like the same songs anyways. But then it helped me kind of get through the other side of like, oh, I see. Okay. So now that I have that and I've processed through that, now I feel like I'm navigating through life a bit more tenderly and gingerly for myself, like having that self-compassion, which I don't, you know, type A, like very perfectionist, like I can do it, stupid other weak people, like I can manage this or whatever the comparison was like, I'm going to be badass, like, you know, I'm going to make it happen. And so it was such a big, I think, gift in the end. And a lot of my healing work with my ex-husband has been around, well, as hard as it has been, these experiences have led me to really spotlight some areas of my life that have needed some big, big healing. And so in that respect, I can be very grateful for the challenges that were brought up. But yeah, I think that, you know, mental health has always been a component of that. And so I feel like that's why I'm trying to help people remove the shame and the stigma. Because if we really want to create a healthier planet and community and whatnot, like you said, the ground up, that's where it starts with ourselves. I keep coming back to like, life comes at you really fast. Right. And I've always been a planner, like a huge, huge planner. And it's hard for me to let go of control. Right. And so trying to figure out, and I mean, you know, like, obviously I went into a profession where it is a lot of control and then your clients do something like that you're just like, what, what, what? And, um, and then suddenly you're not in control anymore. And it was, and so my whole professional life was trying to balance, right. This control and, and struggle over control. And I, I think that parenting really showed me that that's an impossible balance. And so I think that what I would say is really em embrace that, that loss of control, that uncertainty, that messiness. And I know we've kind of lived through, you know, this time period where there's everything's like a maybe, right? Maybe this is going to happen. Maybe my kids will go to school. Maybe, you know, there will be a vaccine for them later this year. Maybe, you know, maybe we'll see our relatives next year, maybe, but everything is a maybe. And I think it's so hard when you want to plan and you want to be in control. It, it has been, it's been hurtful for, or harmful for me to try and figure out that mindset. So I would say, let go of a little bit of that, right? Like there are certain things that we can control. And I, you know, my kids went to this camp and I just told Sarah this whole thing, like we can control attitude and effort. That's, mm -hmm. that's literally it, right? We can control your attitude and your effort. So like now I try and say to myself, that's what I'm going to control. And who knows that, who knew that, you know, my kids like sports camp would have taught me this big life lesson, but that is what I try and put out in the world. And so I think along those lines, like, you know, asking what do you need to, what do you really need to control? What do you not need to control is sort of a, that central question. That's an amazing lesson. I love that your kids sports camp taught that. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Who knew? Like, seriously, <laughs> best money I ever spent towards a camp, this one. <laughs> and what's your 1A? What's the question that you wish people would ask you about? That's a tough one. You know, I, I wish people would 
you know, because I did such a traditionally successful career for so long. Right. And, and I think there are ways to Sarah's point, like way earlier about there's a divide, right. Between people who are sort of in this traditional path of success and people who are focused on humanity, there are ways to really marry the two. And there were ways that I found in which I could do it. And there are ways that I couldn't do it. And so I wish people would ask more about how that's possible, right? Like how can we, because I think for some people, it is very hard to give up traditional success, but there are ways to still work towards that. And maybe that is the bridging the divide there. Maybe that is, especially in Asian communities, because I feel like we, there is a lot of pressure to achieve this traditional success. But if you're also trying to be heart-led in other ways, like how, how do we, how do we bridge that in ways that make sense for us? I love that because you're reminding me of a tool that I think that I've been able to use in my own life, in relationships and all of that is the and conjunction instead of like, or you can say like, well, this is what I want. And, you know, this is also what I want. And it was so kind of freeing to be like, wait, (laughs) you can figure out a way to navigate the whole of it like that's pretty cool and yeah sometimes you're gonna have to sacrifice one thing for another or whatnot but at least knowing that there is a and opportunity is so great now I'm thinking about tattoos anywho <laughs> I was like I could get a tattoo somewhere <laughs> thank you so much both of you for your time if people want to follow up with you to listen to your podcast and to order your book where can they find you we are always centralized at www.dearwhitewomen.com but we also are all over Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast. And you can order the book on Bookshop or on Amazon called Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism. I'm so excited because I keep thinking about my daughter and just how can I help her navigate? I was just mentioning that I was reading a article in Parents Magazine or something, and it was talking about like, what do you do when your six-year-old thinks they're fat? And so one of the tips was instead of pretending like different body shapes don't exist, you acknowledge that that is there. And, you know, I think there's a subtle form of gaslighting that kind of happens for all of us of in the effort to be polite and respectful, like this is what we do. But I love the name of your podcast, the name of your book, you know, acknowledging and putting words and a name to this, because only when you have the words, can you start the conversation? So Thank you both so much. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. And thank you also for right after we launched last week's episode, so the kickoff to season two, someone in Australia made a generous donation to the podcast. So thank you so much. And actually, because she screenshotted, you know, mentioning this podcast in her own blog post, she shared about how my podcast, I say Asian Americans. And, you know, for her, she wrote in parentheses that she interprets it as Westernized Asians. So I'm really curious if that term resonates with you. You know, as I mentioned in last week's episode, which was the personal essay and kind of catching you up on what's been happening over the hiatus and where we're going towards. I mentioned how, you know, a bit of the feedback from two of the agents that I've talked to thus far is the memoir kind of self- help memoir, I guess you could call it that, a memoir that's prescriptive is how I've defined it so far, is that they wanted to see how there could be more access points for different people to relate to the content. And I've been just sitting with that, wrestling with that, kind of trying to figure out whether or not I agree, because the other friends of mine who've written books have told me that you need to get very clear about what book it is that you want to write. And then 
make sure that everything aligns to that as well. Because of my marketing background, I of course think about, you know, I know where these agents and these publishing houses are coming from. They want to be able to make sure that they're investing as any smart business person should do in something that'll really take off and make an impact and potentially generate a lot of revenue. So I know where they're coming from. But when she wrote this term, Westernized Asians, it got me to thinking that, yeah, I feel like, you know, it's also stories of children of immigrants or, you know, first generation, however you define that. So I think there are multiple access points. I just want to make sure that I'm also standing in the confidence of myself as a writer, as someone who has this lived experience, as someone who's helped a lot of people along the way, just through the way that I live my life and teaching yoga and coaching different clients and all of that kind of stuff and wanting to make sure that you know, that thread of what it is that I uniquely bring into the world continues to shine and that it's out there because, you know, I always say that I don't know why you wouldn't try to not be generic, why you wouldn't want to stand in your own strength and light and power because from the beginning of time ever after, there will never ever be another you. And it's so vital to be wildly you you are uniquely designed as you are. And there's no reason that we need to continue to try to homogenize because it supposedly feels safer. But instead, can we get very specific and then find our own relatability within that specificity? So I'd love to hear your feedback and whether or not you resonate with that. And if that's something of interest to you, then please do come join me in my Facebook group. And you can just find the group at Fuck Saving Face. Again, that's fuck without the you. And let me know what it is that you think. I look forward to seeing you next week for our mindfulness episode. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. You can follow me on Instagram at fucksavingface or have an honest conversation with me in my private Facebook group, Fuck Saving Face. That's fuck without the you. If you enjoy this work, please help support and sustain it. The best ways to do that are to share it with your friends and networks, subscribe, rate, and review on your listening platforms, and of course, through your thoughtful financial donations. You can buy me a coffee or treat me to lunch or share even bigger love at fucksavingface.com. Again, that's fuck without the you.